This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Well, here we are again, Pastor Andy, these Wednesdays, and we record on Wednesday, for those of you who might not know that. These Wednesdays roll around fast, middle of the week. It comes quick, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it seems like I get through a sermon, and I start to think about the next one, and then all of a sudden, here we are again doing another podcast. Yeah, it's good to have you with us. We really appreciate that. Just know how much that we do, and know that you're always invited to join us here at Methodist Temple on Lincoln Avenue and Evansville, Indiana, Lincoln and, and Kelsey. You can also catch us virtually. And we just take this time in the middle of the week uh, to look back on last week's worship service and last week's message and, and process that and try to apply that to our lives and then look forward to, to next week. Pastor Andy has been in a sermon series, a 25-part sermon series on the Oracles of Religion. And we'll do that in a second, but we always like to check in with each other and do a little uh, checkup on the condition of our souls. And I just came uh, from the hospital to see to see my aunt. And um, my parents are gone. And her generation, um, you know, they're in their mid-80s and, and approaching 90. And so there's going to be some hospital visits. But it's unusual that I would visit a member of my family in an Evansville hospital because I don't really have elderly relatives in Evansville. And what struck me as I visited my aunt in the same hospital that I visited many of our church members is that it's different, but not that much different. You know what I mean? I mean, this is my, this is a, this is a member of my family. This is a blood relative, but ideally the relationships that I have with the, the members of our church are pretty darn close in the eyes of God and the relationship. And I, I, it just struck me as I sat there with her um, because I make a lot of, and so do you, you make a lot of hospital calls. And to make a hospital call on my on my aunt uh, just reminded me of uh, the larger family. Absolutely. Yeah. Well put there, Randy. Um, my experience has been when it's my family, there is a different um, <laughs> layer to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but... Yeah, the larger family, our family, and the spiritual connection we all have. And my God moment, I guess, as I think about my soul this week, actually has to do with going to see a parishioner in the hospital. And after I got home, my wife, Leslie, said, how did it go? And I said, the person that I went to see, I said, she was just illuminated. Yeah. Like, you entered that room, it was like entering into um, a cloud of God's love and presence. Mm -hmm. And um, and I just came away from that visit renewed in my own spirituality and my own faith. And I'm sure you've experienced that as well. Uh, a lot of times you go see them because you think they need a pastoral call. But I find that it's in the visitation itself and praying and seeing the faith of a person um, who's struggling with some sort of sickness in their life, but the faith that they have and the way that they encounter it, it can be so inspiring. And how appreciative they are. You know, I prayed with my aunt and as I uh, let go of her hand and she let go of mine, she said, just you know, keep praying for me, you know, keep praying for me. And she, she's sincere in that and wants it and, and appreciates it so much. Yeah, and the visit that I was just referring to, I, I prayed. And then when I got done praying, the parishioner actually started praying for me and my family, <laughs> brought me to tears. <laughs> it yeah. was like, it was a, a holy ambush, if you will. And uh, so, 
Very meaningful. Yeah. All right. Very good. Okay, let's talk about it. We're in the Articles of Religion. We've reached uh, Article 15. In fact, we reached it last week. Of course, 16 is next, so that's this week. And uh, tell us about Article 15. So Article 15 has to do with speaking in a language so that people can understand it. Um, historically, it's connected to, and I'm kind of sorry, kind of <laughs> kind of ashamed to say this, but it's connected to uh, the practice of the Roman Catholic Church of that time. That they would do their worship services in Latin. And so our articles are written as uh, the Protestant movement is being born, they're written, and one of the things the Protest one of the things the Protestants were really intentional about is like we want to speak in a language that people can understand. And part of the, quite frankly, part of the reason they did that is because they're trying to tell everyone why they're not Catholic. It's it's unfortunate, but so the article is about the importance of of conveying the faith and doing worship in a way that that connects with the language of the people. Yeah, and you jumped right in on John Wesley and, and quoted him uh, to the effect, maybe I won't get this exactly, but John Wesley wanted uh, to share plain talk for plain folks. Yeah, he Wesley, I, the phrase I think is, um, his mission was to proclaim plain truth for plain people. Okay. Um, and his goal, as the statement kind of alludes to, is his goal, his mission was to share the Christian faith in a way that was compelling to the people of his time. And uh, it's something that we would try to do today as clergy as well. We want, we don't want to just be stuck in a, a language system or a, even in some sense an idea system of the past. But what we're concerned with is how do we convey the Christian message and the Christian faith in a way that people can understand? Your illustration about flying into a foreign country was helpful. Yeah, yeah. It's I, um a lot of times um, for people who've not grown up in the Christian church or going to church, if you think about it, like it's like you got on a plane, went to a foreign country, got off the plane, and everyone's speaking a language that you don't understand. As well, they're engaged in customs that you don't understand. And uh, I know that's hard for someone who grew up going to church their whole life to get, but it helps us to understand how, I don't know, confusing um, what we're doing sometimes as Christians is for a, a culture that um, in many ways is post-Christian. Yeah, I think we do need to pay attention, especially people who are new and come into our doors. And we don't know a lot of times right away whether they've ever been inside a church and the kind of language that we use, the terminology mm -hmm. that we use, the symbols that we refer to could just be lost on people. I mean, just look through the hymn book in some of the language. These, now let me just say, I love the songs in our <laughs> hymn book. Uh, they're beautiful, they're poetic. But some of them, some of the songs are written in the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s. And, and it's almost like you need an interpreter, like a pastor, to come alongside and be like, well, you know, this is kind of what's going on. And this is what that language means. And uh, I don't know. I, I run into it all the time, though. And I'm sure you can kind of uh, resonate with this. We as Christians, so much of the time, we use the same words and language, but they don't always even have the same meaning. And so you have this one group that doesn't really understand it at all, but then you have these other people within the church itself where we're using similar language, but it doesn't always mean the same thing. We're talking past one another. And so, I don't know, it, it's just so important to convey what it is that we're trying to say and define it the best we can. And I'm certainly imperfect in the way I do that sometimes, I'm sure, but 
that's my goal. Yeah. And I said this last week, I think, but um, I've really appreciated what you've done with these articles. Even this one is, um, this is about Latin uh, being spoken in the church, but it can't be about Latin being spoken in the, at, at Methodist Temple this Sunday. That can't be the point, but there is an underlying truth. And throughout all of these articles, you've been about not... Um, not redefining uh, what the truth is under these, but explaining them in an explainable way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to point to the, I believe within every one of these articles, there's a timelessness there. There's a, a core principle, a truth, however you want to describe it, that's there that we continue to um, need and wrestle with in our lives today. And, and in that sense, this article this past week may be very well one of the most important articles in the whole 25 because it says, hey, wait a minute. Um, you've got to think about how you're conveying this message, the language you're using, and does it does it connect with the people, your, your audience you're trying to reach? Yeah, and you made the point that we don't have to understand everything through the lens of theology. Um, psychology can even help us understand spiritual things. Yes. Um, and let's be honest about the Western world that we live in right now. Science and the world of psychology and mental health, that is a language that resonates with the majority of our culture instead of the religion, um, the language of religion and theology. And just quite frankly, um, for me, in some ways, I connect more with science sometimes nowadays because as I get into my sermon, as I got into my sermon, um, there's some exciting things being said in the world of science. And, you know, they're exploring new possibilities. They're open to new insights. I really resonate with that kind of spirit. And so I find a home with science. So I, I enjoyed my my sermon, uh, working on it this last week, although I worry, <laughs> just a confession here, I got a little esoteric a little bit. I mean, I, you know, even the language of science can be kind of daunting too. Yeah, but it's so helpful when we allow ourselves to say, if psychology can uncover some truth about who we are as human beings, then uh, that's revealing something about God. Yeah, like, well, you've alluded to it before. I think you've even used the statement, if it's true, it's of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. No matter where it comes from. Right. Because that's in the end what we're trying to get to. What's real? What's true? And so if science can confirm some of the things we talk about as people of faith, I mean, we're not in competition with one another. We're just on the quest together. And so that's kind of why I enjoy the uh, going into the world of science and well-being, because I've obviously gone to a lot of school when it comes to theology, and yeah. I spent a lot of time in the Bible. But um, I don't know. that It's just good when there's some correlation there. Yeah. Tell us about William James, if, if that's not going to get too esoteric. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, William James is a fascinating figure. Um He's known as the father of American psychology. He's actually the first person to offer an education class on the subject of psychology and kind of a higher level education setting. Um, he lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But in 1903, I think it is 1903, he gave a series of lectures on religious experiences. And then he ended up becoming a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And now the fascinating thing about James is that he assumed that, how do I say this, that the spiritual dimension of the world and in our lives was something that was actually real. And he also assumed that religious people that were having experiences with God, experiences with the sacred, um, 
mainly conversion type experiences in his context, they were telling the truth about what was happening to them and in them as a result of their intersection with God's presence within their lives. And James also um, admitted that these types of experiences had a positive effect on a person's mental health and well-being. And so the reason I bring him up is because from the very beginning, when psychology and counseling and mental health and all that stuff was just getting started, from the very beginning, one of the major players recognized that, hey, there's something to this. It helps people. Um, unfortunately, James, uh, his work on the religious aspect of it in terms of mental health psychology, in many ways, his work was dismissed. And I think one author described it as was kind of put into a shadow culture. Yeah. Um when it came to religion and spirituality, but uh, I bring him up just because I find him helpful. He believed that there, the way he used the, the term he used was there's a more M O R E. There was a more, <laughs> a sacred dimension. Um, but not to get too much in the weeds with him. Another thing he said, I didn't get it in my sermon, but I thought it was cool. He talked about the more um, God was in business and the way that God conducts business is like, there's two different ways. He called it, there's wholesale business and there's retail business. And he, the wholesale business is like uh, the God that's everywhere and always working in all people. And the retail business is like those religious expressions that have come about as a result of those experiences with God. And, and one of the things that happens and has continued to happen even in our world today is we mistake our retail business God for something absolute. We think that our words, our language... Our way of thinking are like the only ways to think about God. Um, and when we do that, I think we're in some dangerous territory. So anyway, James, as a psychologist, <laughs> noticed a lot of the things that we've noticed as pastors as well. Okay. And then Dr. Lisa Miller, you have used uh, the work of Dr. Lisa Miller before, uh, but she's current and uh, she's helpful in the same regard. Yeah. So she's like, I guess to use an analogy, uh, she's like the modern day version of William James in the psychology world. Um, Lisa Miller in the 1990s began to ask a question that we're all asking, I think, and that is why aren't people getting better? Uh, she first applied that to folks that were institutionalized with mental health challenges. And then uh, she began to broaden that question to the broader culture. And essentially she began ask, asking questions about like, why is depression on the rise? Why is anxiety on the rise? Why why are people struggling with meaning and purpose? And uh, through her research, she came to believe and realize um, that spirituality is our greatest source of resilience that we have as human beings. And so without a spiritual core, we suffer. Um, in terms of our own mental health, we suffer. And she got down, I mean, in the books that she's written, she gets down even to the point where she talks about like MRI studies about people who've developed a spiritual core, that religion and spirituality are very important to them versus those where that's not the case. Um, and so anyway, she kind of echoes a lot of what William James has said a hundred years earlier. Yeah, that has all sorts of implications. I didn't think about this Sunday. I just now thought about it because there's a connection to separation of church and state, which is absolutely you know, necessary. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, if that's taken to an extreme, then, then religion or spirituality can be removed from public life. And that's really not the idea behind separation of church and state because what she's saying, it, it seems to me, is that 
the psychology and the spiritual aspects of psychology absolutely belong in the public space mm -hmm. if we're going to get uh, these solutions to depression and all, and all the rest. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, side notes I didn't get into with my sermon, but Dr. Miller has done presentations for the military, the military in terms of like mental health benefits for young people getting ready to go into our armed forces because the military, they're seeing some of these things that we're seeing in culture with depression, anxiety, um, how fragile people are. And uh, one of the things I remember when she talked about this, she said, a person with a spiritual connection makes better decisions than a person without that spiritual connection. Now, um, I haven't really got into how she defines spirituality yet, but the idea here is when you are thinking from a connected space and you're thinking about how your decisions affect others, not just yourself, you're going to make a better decision. You're going to be a better leader as a result of that. And so, yeah, to divorce the two, to separate the two in terms of a broader culture has massive consequences. If, if we're not thinking about how our decisions affect the world around us and other people in our life, if we're not thinking about how our choices um, impact others, and we're just going to make selfish decisions that benefit us individually, I mean, that's going to have some massively negative consequences in terms of where we go as a people. So yeah, you can't just separate the two really. And I know that's complicated. Yeah. Um, uh, you talked about three claims. I guess these are the claims of, of Dr. Miller, but the first claim is uh, that we're born spiritual. The second claim is that um, where there is spirituality and there is, uh, we use it or we lose it. And the third claim is uh, that it's 30% genetic and 70% environmental. So I'll let you set that up and we'll take them one by one. Uh, who made the claim? Is this a Miller claim? And, and let's start with claim one. Yeah, these claims are, are things that I took from some of her books. Um, she's the author of two books, uh, Spiritual Child and The Awakened Brain. Both of them are fascinating. <laughs> but uh, yeah, these are claims that I, I kind of took out of those books to make the points in my sermon. Um, the first thing she says, of course, is that we come in this world hardwired for spirituality. And uh, the way she defines spirituality, quite honestly, is a lot like how we would define it as Christian people. Um, she says that a robust spirituality is about, how, let me think, I want to make sure I get the words right. Um, it's about living in dialogue and relationship to a higher power that is loving and with us and guiding us. And um, as a psychologist, she's going to be open to the possibility of people are going to name that higher power, that sacred dimension in their life a little bit differently. But the notion is a robust spiritual core has to do with it, a relationship with a divine presence, a loving relationship with a, a divine presence. And so her basic claim is that we come into this world hardwired for spirituality. And in my sermon, um, I, I noted if you've ever had a child or grandchild in your life, you've seen this on full display in the way that they interact with the world. That I think that Examples I give in my sermon, like the tree needs a hug. You know, the, the dog is my brother or sister and, and so on and so forth. But just think about what's happening there. They are experiencing the world and responding to it in a much more enchanted and relational, almost mystical way. As well, most kids are open to the notion of God. You don't even have to convince them of God as well. Most kids assume that the afterlife is reality. You don't have to, they'll have questions about heaven, right? They'll have questions about, but they assume it's real. And 
So her point is we come in this world hardwired for spirituality. Over time, what happens in the Western world is we're told that stuff's not real. We're cultured out of it. We're told that our intuitive type knowing, our heart knowing, uh, dreams, intuitions, hunches, all those things that are a part of our lives as kids typically are kind of, for lack of a better phrase, beaten out of us culturally to the point where we're isolated and we're all alone. Which leads to the next point. Of course, when it comes to spirituality, we either use it or lose it. Before you get there, the a very simple example is, and we all remember being children and how enchanted we were with being alive and mm-hmm. enchanted with the world as if the sky was just always blue, right? Mm-hmm. And then we get older and, you know, and then the sky becomes increasingly gray, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But for a child, you know, every day's a every day's another adventure and a bright day. Yeah, there's a vibrancy to life for a kid. Yeah. Um, and just go back to Jesus. We get so complicated with Jesus and our theology and the things he says and all that stuff. But if you just take Jesus at his word, or at his words, when he was talking to his disciples and he looked for an example of what it looked like to live out faith, he said, you have to become like a child. If you don't become like a child, you're not going to enter the kingdom. So, okay, if that's our starting point, then what's it? What is it like to be a kid and experience the world through the eyes of a child? Now, it's to it's to experience the world in a a transcendent and a relational way that uh, there's more to the world than what meets my eye. That there is a sacred dimension to it. It's like at the theme park when you have to be this high to ride the ride. Mm-hmm. Well, the kingdom of God, you got to be at least this short. Yeah, yeah. at least this small. Yeah, yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah. You, um, you can use that sometime. I can use you that. have a chance to use it before I do, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, I was also thinking about when you're talking about a uh, a greater power. Alcohol uh, Alcoholics Anonymous had this thing figured out the hard way a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. Read the big book. Yeah. The, the the big book of AA, Bill Wilson, and, and yeah. the stuff that they say. They noticed this right away, um, that if a person was going to get over their addiction, that it had... A, a pivotal point, a foundational point of a person's healing came through surrendering themselves to a higher power. And of course, in AA, they're more open to, to find that higher power in the way that you seem makes sense to you or whatever. But even then, it's connected. Uh, Dr. Miller, actually, now you get into the addiction part, she says that um, addiction, particularly in adolescence and then go on into adulthood, uh, often will start as a shortcut for spirituality. It it it, it feeds, or no, that's not the right way to phrase it. it. It fills that gap. It fills that void in our life. Think about what alcohol does or drugs. They give you a sense of calm. They put you in a place where you feel connected with other people. Um, all that kind of stuff is what, a spiritual core is meant to give us. Here's another one for you. Distilled spirits versus the Holy Spirit. Oh, well, Randy, <laughs> look at you just on, full of cigarettes. Man, good thing we're recording this. We make, we can make like bumper stickers with this stuff. So. There you go. Okay. Spirituality, use it or lose it. Yeah. Um, so we can cultivate it or we can walk away from it. And and I think any of us that are listening to this podcast and are honest with ourselves know what that's like. Um, we can make decisions and choices that help us grow in our relationship with God and we make decisions and choices 
we walk away from that relationship with God and um, or the sacred or the higher power, however you want to define it in this sense. But um, in the sermon, I kind of talk about, so what is it like? What are the characteristics of having a spiritual core versus what is it, um, what goes missing when we don't have it? And, and I would say the big one is, is with it, we know we're not alone. With it, we know we're not isolated. Um, with a spiritual core, we have a sense that life is alive and it's guiding, it's bigger than me, and it's loving me. And so just let that set the stage for an event in your life so that something doesn't go as planned. Like, you know, the doctor's report doesn't come back the way you want it to. Your job doesn't work out the way you want it to. Relationship falls apart, any of that stuff. So with the spiritual core, what happens when you experience those stressful events in, in our lives? We all have them. What happens when you have a robust spiritual core is you're like, oh, well, well, that door's shut. So, but I trust that life's going to guide me here. A new one's going to open. Yeah. Um, without that sense, you might hit a dead end, and that dead end could take you to, and well, it can take you to a very dark place if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, claims one, two, and three. That is all really good stuff. I got, I mean, I got a lot out of it. Um, anything else as we wrap up uh, Article 15? Well, the the environmental part, the last point, there's 30%. Mm-hmm. We come in hardwired for it, but 70% of how we experience spirituality is directly result, it directly results from uh, the people we surround ourselves with. Um, for children, if their parents or grandparents and loved ones will talk about relationship with God and faith, it has a huge impact upon whether or not they will as they grow older. Um, at the same time, they have to talk about it with love. That's huge. <laughs> because a lot of times people will talk about religion, but in a dogmatic, rigid, harmful way. And a big part of my ministry and your ministry too, Randy, is like, we're trying to stay away from that because we see the damaging effects of, of what happens when a person is raised in a religious environment where, where quite frankly, they're talking religion, but they don't have spiritual connection. And gosh, that's so devastating to the well-being of a person long term. Because, well, just think about it. Go back to what I talked about, what a spiritual core is like with it or without it. If you grow up in a religious system where the God that you've been taught to believe in is punitive and the way that your, your, your family treated you was um, aggressive in terms of the way they punished you or treated you, you're going to grow up as an adult into a world and a God that is not friendly, is not, not going to be loving, not going to be those things. And so that 70% aspect of our spirituality is huge. Yeah. And it makes sense if, Sharing, you know, a positive spirituality can have a great impact. Sharing a negative spirituality can have a profound impact. They both have consequences. And yeah. and I and I know, and and here's one of the things I'm wrestling with as a result of reading her research. I know that there's some people out there that says, I just don't want to talk about it at all. There's been so much damage done with this, there's been so much harm done with this, spirituality, religion, conversation. I'm just not going to talk about it with all at all. And I'm just gonna let people make their own decision, that kind of thing. That's a choice too. It really is, um, and and it has consequences too, as well. And 
I don't know if you're a parent or grandparent, the one thing I would encourage you to do is, is not shy away from talking to your kid about your own spiritual experiences, your own intuitions and things where God was with you and, and uh, try to do it in a loving way. Because if Dr. Miller's right, and I believe she is, that can have such a positive impact on your grandchild or child as they grow up into their adolescence. And at the same time, if you're one of those folks that, you know, you want to believe in all these things I'm talking about right now, you're not sure. The thing I always tell people to do is just, well, just pretend for a moment, try it on. Yeah. Right. Like pretend for a moment that the universe is alive and loving and with you, you're not alone. And uh, God is with you. If you want to use that language, sure. Um, And notice the difference it makes. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, let's transition into this coming week because I think there are some connections and Pastor Andy is going to have the week off, at least in the pulpit, and I'm going to be preaching. And um, Andy's been doing the 25 Articles of Religion. And I'm going to go back to the Common Lectionary uh, for this Sunday. And uh, I'm going to preach from uh, the Epistle lesson from First Thessalonians. And it's kind of a pre-Advent uh, uh, you know, Advent is all about the comings of of Jesus, uh, Jesus' first coming, and in uh, anticipation of that, and and Jesus's uh, coming uh, to to Earth, and the announcement that that John made, and uh, and then the uh, the coming, the second coming, what's known as the second coming, and this is connected to that, so it's kind of getting us ready for Advent a little bit. But uh, I wanted to share this. This has happened to me just in the last few years where I've come to an appreciation for Paul. Um, I used to sort of ask the question, uh, why is Paul the theologian uh, of the church? I mean, shouldn't, it, shouldn't Jesus be the theologian of the church? We have, you know, four gospels, and after all, Jesus is Jesus, and Paul um, came after uh, Jesus. But then I began to realize that uh, Paul is the only one that we really have any direct biblical access to. We have the writings of Paul that we know that these are from Paul. So it may be incomplete. There may be letters of Paul that we don't have. We don't have complete access to Paul, but we do have direct access to Paul. And through scripture, we don't have direct access to Jesus. Jesus didn't write anything. Now, I'll be really, really quick to say that we do have direct access to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, through prayer. We absolutely have that. But 1 Thessalonians, we believe, is the very first, it's the oldest document that we have in the New Testament, and it predates the first gospel by decades, probably. Mark is probably the first gospel. Uh, 1 Thessalonians then um, Paul wrote that very, very early. So let me just read it. It's from the fourth uh, chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And Paul writes this, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Where I think this might connect to what you were talking about, Andy, is that there's a positive and a negative way to approach and to share scripture. And this is one of those scriptures that has been pulled out of its pastoral context uh, to be utilized in, in what's known as uh, left behind, mm-hmm. you know, theology and, and those who prescribe to that, uh, uh, subscribe to that you know, would point to uh, Daniel from the Old Testament and, and some of the apocalyptic passages in, in the Gospels and, and to the book of Revelation. Um, but if you look at this, um, this is pastoral care 101. Mm-hmm. The point of this passage is this was written so early that uh, the Apostle Paul still thought that Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime. Paul thought that he's coming any day now, I'm still going to be alive and others will be alive and he was teaching that. Well, even though this is early, enough time had passed that people were dying. And so there was a real concern. This is the pastoral concern, Pastor Paul. What now? Uh, You know, our brothers and sisters have died. Are they going to miss out when Jesus comes back? This is what he was addressing. Now, he does it in an apocalyptic way and talks about the hope of the resurrection. But what he wanted to do was encourage them. That's what verse 18 says. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Those who have died are not going to be left behind, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Those who uh, those who have died are going to be taken care of. And then, of course, later, you know, Paul himself as the uh, as the second coming was delayed, it is still delayed 2000 years later. He adjusted, you know, he adjusted his thinking. But to pull this out and to apply it to this left behind theology, in my estimation, is to misuse the scripture because the left behind theology, I'll get into some of this in the sermon. um, It presents um, a very angry, violent God and, and Jesus. I mean, there's just no two other ways about it. And what we say, the things we say, the words we use in theology, they have implications over who we believe God to be. Mm-hmm. And so who is, you know, who is God? Is God the God we see in Jesus who rides into Jerusalem uh, you know, on a donkey and in one account with the donkey's colt mm-hmm. rides in in peace? Uh, uh, is it the is God the God of Jesus who said, love your enemy? Or is it this God who's going to come back at the end of time and, and there's going to be a lot of bloodshed? So uh, this can get very deep uh, very quickly. But um, the one thing I do want to make sure that I do uh, Sunday is I want to have my grandmother in mind um, when I talk about this. I think it's important that um, we have responsibility as pastors to offer correctives to what we clearly disagree with in terms of how we read uh, scripture. Um, But my grandmother would sing a song more than once, and it's why I remember it. She would sing, Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon, many will meet their doom. So she was someone, and I know others, and we all probably know others who subscribe to this left behind theology. Well, I I know that my grandmother did because she sang about it and I think she looked forward to uh, the return of Jesus, but I know my grandmother had no interest in doom, Mm -hmm. absolutely no interest in doom, Mm -hmm. right? But but that's what left behind theology is. It's about doom. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyway, that's maybe opened up a can of worms, but uh, I, I wanna be gentle 
I, that's my point. I want to be gentle with that when I, you know, when I sort of offer this well, corrective. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many things that's popped in my mind as you were just talking there, Randy. Um, uh, I guess to say it simply, the God in which we wor- the God we worship inevitably determines the type of folks we become. And if your God's a violent God, where uh, it's going to bring doom upon people and like attack us in the middle of the night kind of thinking that could lead to a group of people that do all that kind of stuff. If you're not careful Um, in the end, I guess what I would say is if you really didn't want to know what a person believes, just watch what they do. That that's what determines what, what really is real. Um, You know, for me, like in the world of world of Christianity, I don't agree with everybody and they don't always agree with me. Um, but if you really want to know what we believe, watch the way we treat one another in the end. And I think that's what's most important. So That's why I brought up my grandmother. You know, I mean, I don't want to be I, I don't want to make it sound like I have all the answers, like I've arrived at the truth because I know people who um, who don't agree with me and we don't have to agree with each other. Um, you know, there can be many, many interpretations mm-hmm. of these scriptures. But I, I do believe that love has to be the ultimate thing and uh, i know that love was the ultimate thing for my grandmother even yeah. though even though she mouthed those words you know jesus is coming soon morning or night or noon many will meet their doom um she didn't want anybody to uh, be doomed uh, no. and so again it's uh what do you show with your life yeah yeah and i mean a helpful way that i found to look at the apocalyptic te- text particularly is yeah jesus is going to show up anytime now might be in the person that you meet and, you know, this event in your life. And you, if you miss it, you meet your doom. You don't, you know, you miss that spiritual connection in your life and it has an effect. If if you're not seeing the world in a um, through the lens of faith or as, as a lens through the sacred, that kind of thing. And so when I came to give myself permission, really, to look at those texts in that way, it really opened things up for me. Yeah. Through that interruption, that person I didn't expect. Um, those kinds of things. Also, regardless of what one comes down on when it comes to these eschatological type of text or ap- apocalyptic t- type of text, at the end of the day, we as Christians believe it, that God is working in a Christ-like way, is is moving the world to a Christ-like place. And that's what's most important because that's really what gives me hope a lot of the times is I trust that God's still working in a Christ-like way, even though, you know, sometimes it didn't seem like it around the world in which we live it right now. And that's the gift of Christianity, because why are we waiting for Jesus? Jesus is here. Jesus mm-hmm. came, and by the Spirit, Jesus is here. And we are, uh, we're supposed to be a part of bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, you know, right now. I uh, I made a post one uh, time, I don't even remember what exactly what it was about, but there was a comment that said, um, Jesus is coming soon, you know, the comment. And I, I didn't respond this way, but I thought, yes, and, and Jesus is here now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. and Jesus uses that language himself. Yeah. When I was a stranger, you came to visit me. When I was in prison, you went and saw me. Yet when I was hungry, you know, that's Matthew tw- chapter 25. Apocalyptic. It, it's apoc- That's an yeah. apocalyptic chapter. Yeah. But, you know, think about it through the lens of, what I would call an incarnational or sacramental worldview, um, or what you just said, Randy, Jesus and Christ are with us through the Spirit. Christ is in that person is suffering. And if you think, see him in that lens, of course you'll do something about it, you know. Yeah. Anyway. 
All right. Well, so much for our shorter podcast this week, but it's been good. I, I always enjoy these uh, this time together um, and we enjoy you being with us. And so, again, uh, you're welcome to join us here in person anytime you want to or uh, worship with us virtually or just continue to listen to the podcast. And uh, we hope that it's we hope that it's hope, helpful for you. Absolutely. And we have fun doing it. If not, you know, <laughs> I mean. I didn't know you were going to go apocalyptic on us today, Randy. <laughs> so. I just hope I don't go too apocalyptic Sunday, but I won't because I'll have – I talk about my mom lenses in certain respects, and yeah. these will be my grandma lenses. Uh, I'll be wearing those today. That'll, that'll keep me where I need to be. <laughs> All right. I always set out to do the same thing. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right, Pastor Andy, thanks a lot. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.